0: Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture podcast. We are back at it again. I just wanted to thank every single one of our followers on Twitter who voted uh, about two months ago for our next Game of Thrones character case study. You all voted for Bran. And we decided we were going to wait till after the show to do the Bran character case study.
1: Because we were waiting to see if he played some kind of major role in the war against the dead or the finale. And it turns out he did. So I would like to consider it canon that our followers on Twitter predicted that Bran would, spoiler alert for season eight of Game of Thrones, turn it off if you haven't watched it yet, become king and lord of the six kingdoms. You guys did it. You guessed it. We already had a lot to say about Bran, but obviously now that he is king, we have more to say, and we are so stoked and so happy that this is the episode that you wanted because we have a lot to share with you tonight.
0: Yeah, well said. So this is our Bran character case study. We are going to dive into all things Bran. I guess the spoiler wall is already up and we've already spoiled things. So if you weren't ready, too bad. Too bad. Um, We're going to like all of our character case studies that we've done in the past. We're going to focus on the show primarily. Um, we We could dive into some things with the books, but this is mostly about the character brand in the show Game of Thrones. One other caveat, there's a lot of discussion and debate going on in particular about some of the shortcomings, potential shortcomings of the writing in season eight. This episode is not going to be about that.
1: This episode is not a review. We spent some time, definitely go back and listen to our recaps, reviews, and sort of theme explorations that were quick takes of season eight. If you want to get any of that, like, in-depth criticism, we're not here to review whether things were done right, necessarily, in season eight. We have all kinds of thoughts about those, but we're here to dive into the character of Bran Stark, the history and the mythology, especially, of how this character was created and what we can learn about his story arc through his roots in these sort of ancient mythologies.
0: Great, so let's do it. So yeah, let's kick it off.
1: Let's absolutely do it. Before we do, uh, definitely reach out to us if you want to uh, see someone else explored. If you have a character that you really want us to do uh, a study of, let us know. Uh, Or if there is anything that you want to share with us, hit us up on Twitter at TheMidnightMyth. You can find us on Facebook or on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, and you can head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com, for lots of additional content there, including blogs. Uh, That's also where you can find our Patreon, which is a place that you can support us for a small monthly donation that will also get you an additional episode each month if you pledge $5 or more per month, and tons of additional content. So, That's a great way to support the podcast if you want to make sure that we can keep creating the work that we do. You'll also find our shop on our website. If you hit that shop button, you have access to tons of merch, t-shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, all of it for The Midnight Myth and for The Wheel of Ka, which is our side podcast about Stephen King's The Dark Tower with Derek and Steve. If you're not listening, if you're a Stephen King fan, definitely check it out. They're doing one podcast a month. They're reading each book and going through and digging into some of the best analysis I've heard. Uh, I'm just completely blown away by the kind of stuff that Derek and Steve are bringing to the table that totally ties into what we talk about here on The Midnight Myth as well. So definitely check it out, read along, uh, and hang out with Derek and Steve once a month.
0: Well done. So in other Game of Thrones character case studies, we would usually do a pretty decent recap Bran's a pretty big character. I'm not going to go too in-depth, but just some basic recapping. Bran is a point-of-view character in the show and in the books. He's uh, known to be a great climber. He likes to climb all over Winterfell. He sees Jamie and Cersei Lannister having an incestuous affair, and Jamie pushes him out of a window trying to kill him, which leaves him permanently disabled from the waist down. He takes over as Lord of Winterfell when Rob marches south to avenge the death of his father. He is there when Winterfell is taken by Therian Greyjoy. He's there in Winterfell when it is taken by the Boltons and burned to the ground. And he makes his way north of the wall, accompanied by a few awesome side characters, which is one thing we definitely want to talk about is the amazing side characters, such as Hodor, the Reeds, Asha, Rickon, Shaggy Dog, and Summer. And uh, he makes his way north of the wall to find the Three-Eyed Raven, which is a man who has become one with a weirwood tree who teaches Bran how to master his ability to travel through space and time into different uh, eras of Westeros and Essos. Uh, He ends up coming back to Winterfell. He is there at the Battle of the Long Night to defeat the Night King. And then he is ultimately crowned King of the Six Kingdoms. The North ends up being an independent kingdom and reigns as Brand the Broken, the first of his name, Lord of the Andals and the First Men, King of the Six Kingdoms. And that's a really quick recap of it. One thing that struck me... When in preparation for a Game of Thrones character case study, Laurel and I do a thing where we watch every scene that the character's in throughout the entire show. And it's a big project and it's a ton of fun. One thing that really rung true about Bran is of main point of view characters in the show, he actually gets the least amount of screen time compared to some of our other heroes. He's not in any of season five. And in some seasons, they may go two or three episodes before they do a brand scene. So there's not a lot of material compared to the Daenerys's, the Jon Snows, the Cersei Lannisters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That have a ton of material. But with the little bit of material we get, there's two things that I think are clear. He is probably the toughest character to adapt from book to television when reading the books because. Of how mystical, psychological, and magical his chapters are. He spends half a chapter in a wolf hunting, and that just doesn't really translate very well to television. And uh, the other thing that is also really apparent is that we do see some signs going back watching it that he would actually make a fantastic king. Yeah. Though we don't see much of that in the later seasons. When he he is holding court at Winterfell, um, when Rob is fighting the war for the Five Kings in the South, he does a phenomenal job. He does a great job brokering the peace between Asha and Mira. Yeah, and so we see that he actually has some really good pragmatic skills that he learned from a young age, how to lead and how to hold court and how to mitigate justice fairly, and that really made me feel much better about this imaginary world at the end, that like, you know what? Bran's gonna be a damn fine king.
1: Bran's gonna be all right. Yeah, it's pragmatism and it's empathy, right? As he's serving as the proxy lord of Winterfell, he is shocked to hear that some of his people are being victimized out in the field. And he's like, we have to help them. We have to send people out. If we can't protect our bannermen, why would our bannermen try to protect us? So he absolutely internalizes those stark values and has a, a, a great deal of empathy for people who are lower than his station, which is something that you would expect in a good ruler who would act justly and try to, uh, you know, offer some kind of peace and harmony to his land. So I think you're right about that. I think that's a great observation.
0: I I think another, I think there are two connecting scenes to why I think the kingdom is probably in good hands with Bran. One is not a Bran scene at all. One is a scene with Tywin and um, Tommen after the assassination and poisoning of Joffrey, where Tywin teaches Tommen, wow, that's a tongue twister, That the greatest attribute of a good ruler is wisdom, to be wise, to rule justly and to rule with wisdom. You couple that with what the Three-Eyed Raven represents, which is a sort of record of the entire history of the realm. You get someone with the capacity to be wiser than anyone else in the show. And I think my entry point is to understand the mythological roots of knowledge and wisdom that Brand represents. He is not wise in the way the masters are wise, which represents academia, which represents containing units of knowledge within books and passing those on from student to teacher from generation after generation and allowing for new arguments and incremental change to like sharpen the, the knowledge of the realm. Brand represents a more mystical form of knowledge. And I think that's my beginning point. What does it mean to have mystical wisdom? And where does that mystical wisdom reside in? And I think there's a answer to that. It's in the trees. The weirwood trees create a vast network that transcends time and space. And once brand is able to access this mystical network, he is able to access and see different points of history. And from that, he can see the good, the bad, the wise, the unwise. And I think that is the the main bread and butter. I wish the show said this, that Tyrion Tyrion makes the argument that Bran should be king based upon two reasons. One, the ability to craft a narrative around him. In other words, there is a mythical um, apparatus of propaganda that we can use to sell him as a king to the common people. And uh, two, he's unable to father children, ending dynastic rule. And I'm writing a whole blog about that. That should be up yeah, soon. Yeah, keep an
1: eye on the website for Yeah,
0: time. so uh, all about that. But I kind of wish that we had seen that. Also, he's the wisest. And that's why, because he knows the faults of Ares Targaryen, Robert Baratheon, and Cersei Lannister because he can see all of these different individuals and see how that they fell apart and why that they were ultimately were bad rulers that it would inform him and make him a wise ruler for the seven kingdoms pardon me the six kingdoms
1: because the wheel uh that we talk about breaking the wheel that Daenerys talks about breaking uh doesn't just correspond to dynastic rule it corresponds to the fact that we or, I say we, but Westeros has failed to learn from its history. While, you know, the Long Night was fought thousands of years ago and this great hero arose to eradicate this or at least push back this existential threat in the White Walkers, I... Uh, we are now facing the same challenge again and haven't learned the lessons of the past. We've forgotten that they even exist. We've forgotten how to fight them because it's fallen into myth and shadow, but having a a figure like the three eyed Raven who can access the history, who can access the mistakes of the past offers us an opportunity to break the wheel. I think that's an interesting um, sort of observation there that wisdom becomes the way to, uh, forge a new way forward instead of just conquest, instead of just, uh, you know, an idea of being the, uh, mystical heir to a throne. I think that's great.
0: Yeah. And it's a particular type of wisdom. It's magical wisdom. It's wisdom of the old gods. It's, it's the wisdom of listening to the birds and the bees and being able to see it's the wisdom that, uh, that has many mythological analogs and antecedents that we're going to dive into pretty much in-depth tonight. Um, I'd like to begin the conversation about mystical wisdom, and if you would permit me, I would like to draw a comparison that I don't think is necessarily point-for-point, but is eerily similar to Bran, and that is in Norse mythology. And that also connects us to our last episode, which was about Thor.
1: Yeah, yeah, please go ahead.
0: I'm going to make an argument here in a metaphor that I don't think is the direct inspiration for Martin, but plays within the same wheelhouse. And let us think of Bran the Broken as Odin, the Allfather, the king of the Norse gods. So there's a few interesting aspects to it. So one... Central to the cosmology of the Norse is the world tree, Yggdrasil. And I can't pronounce these names, so I apologize to anyone that can and how I brutally fuck them up. But Yggdrasil is the world tree in which all of the nine realms are branched out of. Odin seeks to be the wisest of the gods, so he disguises himself as a commoner. What does Bran do on his path towards wisdom? Travels as a commoner, not as a big lord. Um... Odin has to travel through the the land of giants. North of the wall is what? It's a land, land of giants where giants where reside. It's cold and Frost it's dark. Giants. Yeah. yeah, and giants could be huge monstrous creatures or just regular sized devious creatures. So he has to cross that, and he gets to a magical pool with another god named Mimir. Now Mimir keeps this pool, and this pool is ultimately what feeds Yggdrasil, the world tree. It's where it gets its water from. And Mimir takes a magical horn and he drinks of this water and it makes him the wisest and smartest of the gods. Odin wants to drink from this water. He wants that wisdom. And Mimir demands of him a sacrifice. He must leave one of his eyes in the pool of water. So Odin rips out his eye and leaves it in, drinks of the, the, the pool of Mimir, and sees more with one eye than any other god has ever seen with two and hence becomes the wisest of the gods and because he is the wisest of the gods he is fit for rule another interesting analog here and i'll dive into some of the symbolism with brand odin also hangs himself from the world tree making it also a gallows so there's an air of death over the entire thing And there's an air of apocalypse over all of Norse mythology as every story fits one little piece that ultimately leads to Ragnarok, Ragnarok, the end of the world. Well, Bran doesn't remove an eye, but he certainly gets a third eye. He gets to see more with his two eyes than anyone else as he becomes the three eyed raven Two, Bran doesn't lose an eye, but he is physically disabled in that he loses the ability to use his legs. Odin loses the ability to lose an eye. So there's a loose um, you know, analog there. But lastly, one of the ways that Odin is such a good ruler is he has two ravens that fly on the yeah. world tree that inspect and inform him of everything that's happening. Those ravens' names are...
1: Hugin and Munin.
0: Yeah, I needed Laurel to help and me. with I that. And I believe
1: those translate to thought and memory.
0: And what is it that the three eyed Raven protects? It's the memories of the realm as articulated in, I think it's uh episode two of season eight that the night King in order to create a permanent apocalypse has to remove the memories by killing the three eyed Raven. Yeah. So there's a linkage. What does, what does a warg do if not control the thoughts of another? Yeah. So we have the Raven, the tree, we have the, the losing a core physical attribute on your path towards wisdom And that ultimately wisdom linking you to being able to be a monarch and to be able to rule. And in many ways, I see a lot of Odin in Bran and... I think that's fucking awesome.
1: Yeah, I I think that's incredible. Uh, You say that Odin could see more with one eye than most men could with two. Most gods. Most gods can see with two, Uh, almost as though he has grown a third eye. But there is a similar line that the uh, original three-eyed raven, Brynden Rivers, shares with Bran when he arrives at the cave of the three-eyed raven, which is, you will never walk again, but you will fly uh, so there's this contradiction there that says, by uh, by removing this one obstacle, by uh, sacrificing a physical attribute, I give you this mystical knowledge, this mystical wisdom that allows you to access something beyond, metaphorically beyond, the physical attribute.
0: Yep. And in this way, I do believe if the show is making any comment about power, which I believe is where its main thematic dialogue is, is... The nature of power, who holds it, why should they hold it? What do they do when they have it? The the answer to who should hold power, why should they hold it, what really is power is knowledge and wisdom are power. And when you have power, you have an obligation to focus your mind and your energy on both knowledge and wisdom. So you have the character in Bran, who is by far the wisest due to his ability to be the three-eyed raven juxtaposed to Tyrion, the intellectually smartest, and Sam, probably the second intellectually smartest character on the show, forming the basis of a new monarchy that's going to be wise.
1: Yeah, that's oh, that's amazing. I'm excited that you brought up Norse mythology and you connected us to that mythological tradition because I do think that Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire are in huge conversation with that. Uh, and especially if you're building a medieval story that is steeped in the history of the British Isles, you're going to have to be in dialogue with that sort of Anglo-Saxon narrative. Uh, you know, I think about Robert and Gendry with the Warhammer feeling like a Thor-esque figure. Uh, or I think about uh, the entire uh series of wars that this leads to being sort of like the buildup to Ragnarok, the end of the world. Uh, there's a lot to be in conversation with there. But I do think that. The Northern characters and what goes on beyond the wall is also in conversation with another mythological tradition, and that is the ancient Celtic tradition.
0: Let's do it. So
1: I want to turn toward that.
0: Yeah. Have we ever talked ancient Celtic myth in the show, in our show, Midnight Myth, before?
1: We have talked a few folk motifs, which we will revisit tonight because there are a few that pervade the uh, the myths of King Arthur. Uh, So we will be in conversation with that tonight, but we haven't done like a full dive into Celtic mythology. And a huge reason for that is, like the Norse tradition, this was a mostly oral tradition that wasn't written down until way, way, way later than the origin of these tales. So what we have surviving of the mythology of the ancient Celts is mostly preserved in just a couple of manuscripts. Uh, And the big one that I think we're going to dive mostly into tonight is the Mabinogian, as it's called. Uh,
0: uh, Did you just sneeze? Bless you.
1: Mabinogian. That is not the weirdest (laughs) Welsh word that I'm going to say tonight.
0: (laughs) There's a lot of weird Welsh words. (laughs) There are a
1: lot of uh, crazy pronunciations in Welsh that I'm going to do my best at tonight, but uh, we, we will see what happens. Let's
0: dive into it. I'm really excited to talk Celtic myth because I think... That's really the bread and butter of Bran the Broken.
1: Bread and butter of Bran the Broken. So, uh, I'm
0: all about the alliteration tonight.
1: I I turned to Celtic mythology primarily because of what we know of the history of the first men in the North, which if you have seen the little documentaries, the little mini um history and lore of Game of Thrones, you'll know uh, a lot more about the history of the Children of the Forest, or if you've read the books, you you know this stuff. But the Children of the Forest were the the first people on the continent of Westeros, these sort of mystical fairy-like creatures who communed with the Weirwoods, carved the faces in them, and had this animistic religion that became known as the, you know, the faith of the old gods. Uh, So the first men eventually adopted the faith of the old gods and worshiped the weirwood trees, just like the children of the forest did and passed that down through their generation. So most of the people of the North are descended from the first men and people who worship the old gods.
0: Can I uh, throw something out there for those that maybe don't know? Could you describe animism and define it? Because for some, that may be a new word.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So animism is uh, it's a type of religion or a type of spirituality that seeks to find a sort of spiritual power in nature and usually ascribes individual spirits to trees and rocks and plants and animals and things of that sort. And so,
0: oh, correct me if I'm wrong, everything has a spirit in it in animism, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: So for the children of the forest and for those worshipers of the old gods in Westeros, every single tree has a nameless, faceless god within it. There is a lot less structure to it than the faith of the seven. Uh, there are fewer laws and rules, but there is an innate acknowledgement that everything has this great uh, internal spiritual power. It's just a lot more mystifying to understand and interpret.
0: And it's also less structured, like you said. So the Faith of the Seven has an entire book by which people will debate, yeah, like theologians will debate. Yeah. They have a, a whole you know hierarchy of how that church works. That church is intimately linked to the politics. Because it is the High septum who places the crown on the head of the king, but the Old Gods is a more loose, more fluid, and it involves spirits that exist everywhere. Yeah. Correct. Okay.
1: And to watch someone worship the Old Gods, to watch someone like Ned Stark uh, worship the Old Gods, is to watch him go and polish his sword near the pool of uh, the Godswood within. Uh, Winterfell. He will go and commune sort of spiritually internally with those trees without having a rigid dogma or orthodoxy around how to do that. Uh, So that's kind of why I was inspired to look at uh, Celtic mythology, uh, because that calls to mind these sort of druidic uh, connections to nature that are innate in our uh, perception, our interpretation of what the ancient Celts looked like.
0: Sure. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, I think it's a very clear analog to me. Absolutely. The old gods feel like ancient Celtic or ancient Druid traditions. Yeah. The the way that they worship, the fact that they are, you know, in commune with spirits that communicate through trees. When Asha tells Bran when he's praying by the godswood, can you hear them? And Bran's just like... No, she's like no, no. Listen, and yeah, they listen. The song
1: of the earth. Yeah, yeah, they
0: listen to the the rustling of the weaves, li- the leaves, and Brent's just like, isn't that just the wind? And she's just like, who sends the wind, boy?
1: Oh, that's so good. Yes, exactly. So we're going to talk a, uh, about a few of the tales in this Mabinogion, which is a contemporary title given to this collection of usually eleven tales from the Welsh tradition. Uh, the four branches of the Mabinogi are the first four tales within this tradition, and the rest are native Welsh tales or romances that do or do not involve King Arthur, and a few extras. They're sort of a miscellany that got tied together and have a few connected themes. Uh, This was mostly found in uh, two manuscripts uh, around 1282 was the time that these were really discovered and put down to paper uh, for the at least the oldest versions that we have.
0: And that's CE, right? Yes. Yeah, that's in the high middle ages. Yes. You can
1: see that this is an ancient tradition that was oral, but wasn't written down until the high middle ages, which is crazy. So we can't even imagine where these tales began. But the four branches of the Mabinogi or the Mabinogian proper are based in this Welsh mythology. They're probably the ones with the oldest uh, origins going backwards and they mostly focus on the exploits of the hero Praderi and his family. So it begins before he's born and it ends after he has died, but he's mostly connected with all of these tales. Um, there's a huge cast of characters and they are sort of earthly and sort of divine. Now I want to talk a little bit about the first and second branches of the Mabinogi. The first is called Pwich, Prince of David. <laughs> <laughs> is exactly, I, I swear that's how you pronounce it. It's spelled P-W-Y-L-L, Pwyth.
0: Sorry to all the Welsh people out there for doing it misjustice.
1: Please tell me if I get it wrong. So this concerns the hero Pwyth, who is the prince of the seven cantrefs of Dovid. Uh, so this is a small kingdom within Wales and cantrefs are like uh, legal land divisions. So he's got seven of them that he is the king of or the prince of. One day he goes hunting and he meets a stranger in the woods. And that stranger is Araun, who is the lord of Anavan, which is the Celtic otherworld. It translates to underworld, uh, but it's not like a land of the dead. It's kind of just a fairy realm where things are just a little bit more magical than they are here. So you can accidentally stumble into this otherworld, and that's what Puiglet has done. As he meets Araun, Araun convinces Puiglet to trade places with him for a year and a day so that he can strike down a enemy with one blow. And Push is like, absolutely, I will totally become lord of the other world for a year and a day. And they trade places. And as that happens, they assume each other's visages, they assume each other's appearances, but they also assume each other's memories. So there's a sort of download exchange that happens between these two characters as Puih becomes around, becomes the lord of the other world and inhabits his physicality and squeezes around's memories into his own so that no one else can tell the difference. And the same happens for around, looking like and feeling like Puih. He spends a year and a day, he succeeds in his task and he returns to David with a lifelong friend in around, and he becomes the, uh, he, he gains a new title, which is Pwyth Pen-Anafen, or Head of the Otherworld. Not Lord, but Head of the Otherworld. He will go on to marry a woman from the Other World, and he'll become the father of Prederi, the major hero of this cycle of tales. Now, there's another story that references the fact that Pwyth is the possessor of a magical cauldron. And this cauldron is the the cauldron of plenty. So no matter what happens, it will never run out of food or mead or drink or whatever it is that you want inside of the cauldron.
0: That sounds awesome.
1: It's sort of an early predecessor of the Holy Grail of all things. Now, the second branch of the Mabinogi concerns a character known as Bran the Blessed. This character is the High King of Britain, sort of like an Arthur figure He unites and becomes the the lord of all of the uh, petty kingdoms like David, which was prince of. And he's a giant. He also owns a magical cauldron, which resurrects the dead. It has the power to resurrect the dead without the power of speech. Now, civil war breaks out between uh, the Isle of the Mighty that Bran is the king of and Ireland because there has been some tension over the marriage of Bran's sister to the King of Ireland. Bran rushes to Ireland to rescue her and his cauldron, his magical cauldron, which can resurrect people, is destroyed. Bran is wounded in his foot and as they retreat from the, uh, the island of Ireland, which they have won the war in, he tells his men, hey guys, I'm wounded cut off my head, and take it to London and bury it there. I don't really understand why Welsh mythology is kind of weird. So they take his head, but it continues to speak. Bran's head continues to speak, and it entertains them for so long that they spend about 80 years hanging out with this head in the island of Gwales, or Grasholm. Uh, Just being like, man, this is awesome. We're hanging out with this really cool head. And finally it stops speaking and they take the head of Bran and they bury it on the White Hill in London, which today is, legend has it, the site of the Tower of London. Now the word Bran in Welsh translates to raven or crow. And for that reason, till today, that's why ravens are kept at the Tower of London because Bran's head was buried under there facing France in order to ward off invasion. So we have two stories that both deal with a connection to the other world, a magical cauldron, characters with interesting names that perhaps reference ravens, and the idea of being a uh, a lord of multiple worlds, uh, someone who can cross the line between one world and another or can unite uh, disparate kingdoms.
0: Interesting. Funny thing, if, if you may permit me a little interlude. Please. You mentioned that, you know, Brand the Blessed, his head gets chopped off and he continues to speak. Yeah. Well, if we go back to the story I started with, with Odin and Mimir at the uh, the waters feeding Igrisil, Mimir eventually becomes an advisor to another powerful Um, god of the Vanir which is there are two types of gods in the Norse mythology the Aesir where the Asgardians live and the Vanir who live in Vanaheim and Mimir he gets decapitated by the Vanir because he isn't present to give the king good advice when the king of the Vanir needs it and Odin is so upset that Mimir's wisdom is gone that he covers it with magical herbs so it doesn't decay and has his wife uh, Frigga bring it back to life. And Odin has the head of Mimir who is there just as a head to dialogue and to give good advice and good wisdom. And the reason I think it's significant to point that out as we draw connections from the ancient Norse to the ancient Celtic to game of thrones in the Isle that is now called Britain, there were several waves of Norse settlers yeah, yeah. and Norse conquerors in these lands. In particular, there was Snut the Great, a king of Denmark, who conquered all of England, who then, um, you know, not too long afterwards, William the Conqueror, a settled Norman from Norway, came and formed the, 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 the dynasty that formed medieval England as we know it. And there is a clear sharing and blending of these cultures. That these stories—they didn't exist in a vacuum. People were aware of them. People were talking. People were interacting with other people from different cultures and sharing. And I think that there are some some really fun similarities, in particular with the talking head piece. And then we get ourselves to Martin, aware of all of this, and encapsulates a spirit of Celticness. And a spirit of Norseness in the journey of Bran.
1: Yeah. The other great talking head of mythology is, of course, Orpheus, who has his head removed but continues to sing. And this is after he's returned from the underworld. So we have the these sort of corollaries in multiple mythological traditions that speak to the traveling between realms and the uh, imbuing of a removed physical attribute like a head, continuing to speak, continuing to sing, continuing to share wisdom. And I think Bran is connected to all of this because he is, of anyone, the character who who goes across the boundary into the other world. When he reaches the cave of the three-eyed raven, he has passed into a world of folklore. He has passed beyond the world of reality. He has left... You know, the world where petty squabbles of politics matter. And he has walked into a place where the tales that old Nan used to tell him are real. The children of the forest are real. You know, they talk in the first branch of the Mabinogi about how Puig only recognizes that he uh, has has stepped into another world because he sees dogs with red ears. It's just color, or it's just these slight uh, sensory differences that tip him off. And what does Bran encounter when he first uh, crosses the border to uh, communing with a three-eyed raven, but the most vibrantly colorful red weirwood tree he's ever seen. So we just get these light little references that we are now in another world that other characters never interact with. Just this one who has an ability to cross that line and then commune with the lord of this other world.
0: Yeah, and if we go back to the animated head that is able to talk, what ultimately is the Three-Eyed Raven's enemy but the Night King? And what does the Night King do but take this similar idea, reanimating something and keeping it moving and talking when it shouldn't? However, he does it without the spirit that made that person what they were. That body is ripped of its spirit and it shows the reanimation of dead things, but done to weaponize and to enslave rather in the way that it's done with Brand the Blessed or with Mimir to spread knowledge and wisdom or enjoyment.
1: Exactly. And Brand the Blessed owns this cauldron that can bring people back to life without speech and without language, without communication. Are you are you real? Like are, are you alive? Um, and so I, I think both are in conversation with this sort of idea of uh, uh, of immortality or of resurrection or of crossing the line to another world. Yeah, I think they're absolutely talking to each other. Yeah, totally. Uh, there is one more uh, Welsh medieval story, Welsh medieval poem that I want to bring into the fray that's based in the same mythology. And that is called the Cad or the Battle of the Trees. Uh, this is known from a uh, a poem by the bard Taliesin, who has a mythic history of his own, is a fascinating character that I would encourage you to learn more about. But uh, this story tells about the sorcerer Gwydion, uh, who had a fight with Aran, the lord of the other world, and he brought to life with his magic all of the trees of the forest to fight as his army. And during this fight, he had friends by his side, and Around had friends by his side. And the only way that Gwydion could win this battle was by naming the person who fought at Around's side. And he recognized the person and was able to name them by the sigil on his shield, which was the branch of the alder tree. So the quote from this poem says, from Gwydion, Shore hoofed is my steed, impelled by the spur. The high sprigs of alder are on thy shield. Bran, art thou called of the glittering branches? So we have a a, a mythological association of Bran the Blessed, who has appeared as the friend of the Lord of the Other World, and the alder tree, which was a sacred tree to the ancient Celts. I would also want to point out that the first line of this poem, The Battle of the Trees, in Welsh translates to, I have been many things, which is one of the first things that Brynden Rivers, the Three-Eyed Raven, says to Bran when he arrives at the cave. But this association with the alder, the magical tree, I think is also worth a little bit of investigation because the alder Uh, And there are many trees that were associated with the Celts, but the alder is a, a relative of the birch. The birch, which of course has bright white bark, and some species of the alder will have that bright white bark. But if you cut into an alder tree, its sap is red and it looks like blood. And this is why the Celts were so fascinated by this tree, is because they associated that blood of the tree with humanity, with generosity, with spirit, with life. So I think we're, we're seeing a many-fold connection of our bran who becomes associated with the sacredness of the weirwood within the religion of the old gods, the three-eyed raven who is, has literally become entangled with a weirwood tree, this sacred space of the old gods, and the ancient Celts, who had this connection with their own trees, saw a, uh, a, an anthropomorphic quality to them and were able to worship them for that. So we're connecting all of these mythological traditions within Bran, the character.
0: Yeah, I think that's really cool, in particular, the red sap. I mean, yeah. that is exactly what a weirwood tree would looks like. And, is. It, it, and so I think there's no accident or there's no uh, surprise there that the Werewood trees have this eldritch tree as it's sort of in like, real life inspiration. I also would like to, um, in, unless you have more wealth mythology you want to go into, I wanted to pivot to something slightly. If you, that's okay. Go we'll ahead do.
1: and pivot. We'll come back if we need to.
0: Certainly. So there is a air of expectation subversion in having brand be one of the major heroes in a fantasy tale or in a mythological tale traditional myths have as their heroes usually a fierce warrior of some sort this is true from the epic of gilgamesh to the 12 labors of heracles to the battles between achilles and hector to the battles of thor and loki that the main hero is typically someone that has some part of Divine or godlike heritage and has amazing powers that you know differentiate them between the normal mortal people um, even a character like Odysseus, who's known for his cunning is still smarter yeah. and more cunning than others Bran is not the traditional hero in this mold in any way shape or form he's not a warrior and in fact he requires extreme amounts of help to get from point a to point B both thematically and also in tr- pure, pure Just plot logistically yeah he can't walk and he needs to travel the wilderness how does this character do this and I think we would do dis justice to Bran if we didn't branch out and talk about his team the the, the helpers that help him out along the way so I'd like to draw attention and I I'm going to Give them mythological names. So you have Hodor, the the strong, right? And he brings strength to Bran. He carries him. When need be, he defends Bran. Um, Because Hodor has the simplicity of a child, Bran is able to enter into his mind and control him when he needs uh, him to fight. You have Mira, the cunning, who is able to survive and to hunt, who brings survival skills you have um, Asha, the fierce, who brings a ferocity and devotion and dedication yeah, loyalty, and yeah. loyalty. And then you have Georgian, who is Georgian, his, yeah. his spirit guide, who is the person there to usher him across the threshold spiritually from the the mundane and world of the everyday into the sacred and divine place where he can commune with the old gods and see all of history in one picture.
1: Yeah, and Jojen first appears to Bran in a dream, which is sort of a a magical space that is liminal. It's not waking, it's not reality, but it speaks to a greater symbolic reality. And I think that's interesting that you mention the threshold because if anything, the archetype brand represents is the magician. We are watching the origin of a like great wizard, not literally a wizard, but in the tradition of the wizard within fantasy literature and within mythology, we're just watching what happens when they grow from a child to a fully formed adult. And it's rare that we see that person become the like great ruler of a realm because they usually have set aside things like ego and personal glory in order to help others across the threshold.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I think without the the Hodor Osher, and the o, o, Osha, pardon me, Hodor Osha and the Reeds, Bran's story wouldn't happen. Exactly. And I think he is unique in Game of Thrones in that respect. Many of the other major characters are able to get into and out of jams on their own. Yes, they have supporting staff. Yes, they have side characters that are there for them. Daenerys has, um, you know, Daenerys has a ton of dragons, advisors, yeah. Dragons, advisors, and everything, you know, Tyrion. But, you know, Tyrion is able to get into jams and get out of jams on his own. You know, Daenerys is able to find her dragons when they're stolen. She's able to turn. The slavers have asked to pour against her. She's able to gain an army through her strength and ferocity. John is able to wield a sword and charge into battle, and it inspires everyone around him to follow him, even though he doesn't want anyone to follow him at all because he views himself as a no-good bastard. Brand is the one that needs an entire network of people that are willing to lay down their lives to get him to where he needs to be, and they all do. Mira is. So fundamentally broken by her journey with Bran, she leaves the whole narrative. She goes back to her people after sacrificing her brother, after seeing the death of Hodor, after going through a just like a terrible, horrible, painful journey that has cost her the most important people in her life. What does she do once she finally gets Bran back to Winterfell? She goes home. Yeah. It destroys her in many ways, this journey that she does survive, but it psychologically and spiritually scars her. And I think that is a significant aspect of Bran.
1: Well, and the flip side of what you just shared, which is that he needs these people to get him where he is going, is that he is the only one who truly survives it, right? So, so many people lay down their lives. So many people have to split off. So many people uh, get Destroyed by this magical world, but Bran comes out of it stronger. Uh, and that is because these people who have helped him to get there are not equipped with the kind of uh, sort of mystical. Uh, ability that he has, even though Hodor is very strong and can hold the door, even though Mira is a great hunter, even though Asha has this great loyalty, Bran is the only one who is truly capable of wielding the great power and of surviving the other world.
0: The visions nearly kill Georgia. Yeah. yeah. They near every time he has one, he, he has goes a into a seizure like they, and he gets the, the closer he gets to the source of his power to see the sicker and weaker he becomes. Absolutely. Conversely, the stronger Bran becomes.
1: Yeah, yeah. As though he's been sort of healed by the holy grail of the uh, the cave of the three-eyed raven, of that great weirwood tree. Absolutely. Which brings me to a folk motif that I think is very important in interpreting Bran's story and very important in interpreting the choice to make Bran the lord of six kingdoms. And that is something we've talked about before, the Fisher King. The Fisher King uh, pops up the most in Arthurian legend, uh, where he is the guardian of the grail castle, and he is a wounded king who has a wound in his thigh, who sits in a boat and fishes, and his land has become a barren wasteland. And the knight Percival, or other knights on the quest, must uh, interface with him in order to achieve or locate the grail. The grail, of course, if achieved, would restore uh, greatness and, and thriving to the land. This is based in an old Welsh mythological idea that the king's well-being was tied to the well-being of the land. And the Fisher King's name traditionally in our Arthurian legend is Peles, which some people have associated etymologically with Pwych from the first branch of the Mabinogi. So some people think he may be the origin of this idea. And there are wastelands that pop up in later branches of the Mabinogi associated with a castle that contains a golden bowl. Now Puig also owned that uh, magic cauldron of plenty in another story. So we have a connection there. We also have a connection of the Fisher King to Bran the Blessed. And that is because another French writer Calls the Fisher King Braun and says that that's the name of the Fisher King. Uh, and Bran, of course, Bran the Blessed, is wounded in his foot or his leg before his head is removed. So there's another association there. And because we're associated with the Holy Grail, Bran's magic cauldron of resurrection gets linked to that same story. Now I bring this up because George R. R. Martin has a famous quote about uh, his relationship to Lord of the Rings and how it influenced the writing that he did for Game of Thrones uh, and for A Song of Ice and Fire. And he says, Lord of the Rings had a very medieval philosophy, that if the king was a good man, the land would prosper. We look at real history and it's not that simple. Tolkien can say that Aragorn became king and reigned for 100 years and he was wise and good, but Tolkien didn't ask the question, what was Aragorn's tax policy? And there's a, a little bit more to that as well. But he's talking about like real history. It's not enough to just be a just king. The Fisher King myth of like the king is wounded and therefore he cannot make the land fruitful doesn't do it for George R. R. Martin. So I think what we're looking at with Bran is a direct reversal of the Fisher King mythology. It says and while I think there is probably more tactful word choice than brand the broken, because we don't want to suggest that people with disabilities are less than real people or are uh, broken people, he is directly referencing, and it's been pretty much confirmed that the books will end the same way, that even those who have these uh, external uh, injuries, even those who appear to have uh, a piece of themselves missing, can serve as good kings. It's not that simple to just say a king with a wound cannot rule. The twofold wound of the Fisher King is that uh, so the, mythologically, the the injury is metaphorically connected to the thriving of the land. But scholars believe that the thigh injury is a euphemism for a groin injury and that the Fisher King is now uh, impotent. He is unable to father children. What is Bran but unable to father children? And George R. R. Martin and the showrunners of Game of Thrones are saying, hey, that actually might be a good thing for a king to not be a warrior, for a king to not be someone who rushes out with a war hammer, And for a king to not father terrible demonic children and to end dynastic rule is actually good. And we should move away from this medieval philosophy of the Fisher King.
0: Yeah, there are a few kings in the Game of Thrones that rule when we see relatively unchallenged. Um, One of them is Robert. And Robert is self-indulgent. He is an alcoholic. And he loves uh, sleeping with prostitutes. He even says to Ned, I want you to rule for me so I can eat, drink, and whore my way to an early grave. Robert is someone that has no real joy in his life other than slowly killing himself through excess.
1: And who his father Dozens of children,
0: <laughs> dozens of, of bastards. So very potent, yeah. you know, like yeah. he has plenty of illegitimate children out there. Um, no legitimate children. And we clearly see that Robert is a bad King. We see Joffrey and his rule is very much challenged, but we do see Joffrey and Joffrey has been taught that the world was his by birthright. He can do whatever he wants to anyone, whenever he wants, and nobody can stop him. And it turns him into a little fucking sociopath.
1: Yeah. And he's, you know, physically in good condition. He is a character who is like a peak specimen. He's handsome and he's strong and he has, uh, he, he looks right. He looks right in that throne, but that doesn't make him a good king.
0: By the time we get Tommen on the throne, I mean, it's pretty much anyone's game at this point. He's right. sitting on the throne, but is there really any power there? You know, um, and but he has been so sheltered from the world, he knows nothing of it, that he's able to be manipulated by people like the High Septim, people like his mother, people like his uh, wife, um, Marjorie. So he's not able to actually confidently rule on his own. Another one that I want to point out that I think is very much in dialogue with the Fisher King is Khal Drogo. Oh, yeah. The entire authority that you get as a Khal is based upon, A, your ability to kill people better than everyone else, and B, your ability to be a great rider. If you lose either of those things due to injury or sickness, the Dothraki will not follow you and you will no longer be a Khal. A Khal means to be strong. It means to be the the... The opposite of the Fisher King, and what do we see when Caldrogo gets ill, and he ends up eventually getting his life saved, but his entire body is comatose? We see him losing all of his followers, and he is no longer the fierce warrior they believed him to be. Now we get to Bran, and Bran is the opposite of all of these other Kings. And I think you hit the nail on the head when Martin is taking the idea, the Tolkien idea that a good, complete and whole man will be a good, complete and whole King. And what we are seeing is that it really takes a lot more than that. You must be wise. You must be kind. You must have knowledge. Knowledge is more powerful than the ability to chop another man in half with a sword And um, you must
1: have the right people around you.
0: You have to have the right alliances. You have to have the right advisors. If your advisors are all vipers trying to enrich and better themselves, you're never going to be an effective king. One thing that Robert does so poorly is that he allows people like Littlefinger, Varys and Cersei playing games for their own benefit and their own power right underneath his nose that he doesn't even see what's happening because he cares more about hunting than he does about holding court.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: that's a fundamental problem if you're a king. You know, there's something that I learned when I was studying Roman history by one of my, the great professors of my life, a gentleman by the name of Dr. K, he's still teaching ancient history. And he said that, you know, there's a reason there are a few, only a few good Roman emperors. To be a, a good Roman emperor is a, you know, like an 18, 20 hour a day job. You get very little sleep. You have a lot of work to do. It's not easy running a huge mammoth empire and to do it well takes an insane amount of dedication. And that's why most Roman emperors were terrible. That's why so many died. The really good ones are few and far between and you can count them on one freaking hand. And I think there is something to be said in Game of Thrones fundamentally understanding that it's not easy. You, It takes more than just being good because being good was all it took. Ned Stark would be the king. Yeah. Right. And he would be a great king and the world would be happy. It's a lot more than just being good.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it's why, you know, even though we may debate whether the show earned it or whether the show executed it well, uh, he will make a better king than Jon Snow. Uh, And I would love, I wish we could see the kind of ruler that Bran is going to be because I'm sure there will be problems. I'm sure there will be war. I'm sure there will be challenges. But it makes me very curious about the kind of king that he will be.
0: Yep, absolutely. He's not the kind of king that's gonna lead the troops in the field. And that's a really interesting place to leave symbolically, thematically. Did the show pull this off in terms of character arcs? No. No. It really didn't. The character arc aspect of it felt kind of flat. But looking back at it and saying, what does this mean? What does it say about power? And what are its mythological antecedents is fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, and it makes me all the more excited for George to finish those final two books because I am really interested to see the internal story of Bran going forward. Uh, you know, I I realized while while reading the books that, uh, although Danny has always been my favorite character and I just yearn for her point of view chapters, the chapters that I was blown away by and that I was really surprised by how uh, fascinated I was with them were Brand's. Uh, he's the first point of view chapter in the books and he spends so much of his time internally working through the folklore he's been fed, the tales that old Nan has told him, and then transcending time and space as he's learning to become the three-eyed raven. You know, I think about the power of the trees and the timelessness of the trees that you mentioned and how interacting with those, uh, getting in touch and tapping into the power of the root systems and the branches that reach uh, you know, into the ground and into the skies. It helps you remove yourself from the idea of time being one moment at a time. There's yeah. uh, a great fantasy series by the writer Terry Pratchett Uh, his Discworld series. And in one of the books, there's a mention of the trees in the forest who are so old, just so ridiculously old that everything just seems to whiz by them. So when winter happens, they just say, oh, did you feel a chill? Because they have been around so long and have felt the earth and know the earth better than anyone. Uh, And I just love that as a a connection to this world, connection to Westeros, that our little lives are these tiny things that just pass by like a little chill. Every winter passes by like a little chill when you think about the age and the power and the timelessness of the trees.
0: You know, my biggest sort of regret with the character Bran and doing the character case study about Bran is how absent he is from the second half of the show. Yeah. There needed to be a lot more of Bran and one of the, the, the more head-scratchingly perplexing questions was, why didn't they include him more knowing he would end up on the throne? Right. And I really wish they did. I really wish they dived more into his power, what that power meant, and correlated that power directly to his claim to the throne. It would have been really interesting to see. would have been really interesting to see more of the history of Westeros And to fundamentally, so in the episode, Hold the Door, we did an entire podcast on that one episode of Game of Thrones. And I I brought up some challenges to the idea of does Bran's power and his ability to see past, present, and future undermine the narrative that this is a world in which there is choice and choices matter and free will matters and what you choose to do or not to do will ultimately lead to either your success or failure. Rob Stark chooses to buff the phrase and marry someone that's not a fray, and the phrase choose to betray him because of that. But if Bran is able to go into the past and influence the past through his sheer will that could then make changes in the present and ultimately then reshape the future, does anyone really have a choice? Did Hodor? Hodor certainly doesn't seem to have free will. In fact, Hodor seems to be the opposite of free will. He was a young, healthy, stable boy that was just maybe a little too bigger than the others until Bran wargs into him and links Hodor in the past and Hodor in the present, creating a whole new person from Willis to Hodor. And as I reflect on that question now at the very end, I think resoundingly what the show is trying to say, and I don't think they say it well, is that yes, there is choice. Bran deserves this power because he sees how amazing it is and he uses it wisely. We don't see Bran doing things like going into the weirwoods and saving his father from execution. Right. Why doesn't he do that? He realizes that some things that were had to be, he says things to Theon, for example, and to Jamie who both confront him and both apologize because they both did terrible things to them and Brand says to them, you know, those choices that you made, those choices that you made led you to here, where you need to be. He recognizes though he has the ability to influence events in a near godlike way that he has to respect the choices of others and to not overly meddle into the timeline. For a few reasons, one this isn't going to be a show about time travel. Right. You know, and uh two because fundamentally the show is saying free will is more important. If you have the power to go back and manipulate events, you have the responsibility to not do it, you know, or to use it very deftly.
1: Well, and that's why brand has to become so dispassionate. That's why brand has to cease being brand. Because if he remains Bran, then like the Three-Eyed Raven says to him, he'll stay in the ocean and he'll drown. And he'll, he'll want things. He'll want, yeah.
0: And if he uses this power for his desires, he will uh, end up breaking the universe.
1: Yeah, so th- that that is a an encouraging thing to think about when you think about uh, seating an almost all-powerful character on the throne and how dangerous that could be. And while there are sort of ethical questions that I think pop up around some of Bran's abilities, when he first learns to warg into Hodor and takes over a person's mind and body and alters their fate entirely so that that character sacrifices themselves for him, that walks a really, really narrow ethical line, I think. Um, but... What we see Bran grow into is a character who is not going to wield that kind of power for personal gain, which is why I'm encouraged about him sitting on the throne, even though he can do kind of anything he wants.
0: And we never see him use that power again. Right. We never see him do something like that after that one time. He, so even the the three-eyed raven then, before they die, says, Bran, you're not ready. Right. Bran was not ready for that power And I think we can look at hold the door as what he does to Hodor as a huge mistake. One that he realizes the consequences of and doesn't replicate again. You know? And I think that is one of the reasons why he deserves the ability to shape events in past, present and future because he knows the severity of it. He had to make the mistake and crush an individual under the weight of his power that poor, innocent, sweet Hodor.
1: Oh, poor Hodor. Poor
0: Hodor. Man, oh God, I'm just choking up even thinking about that episode. Yeah. Who? In our rewatch, we didn't watch that episode because it's just too fucking sad and I've yeah. seen it enough times. Yeah. But um, I think that's one of the reasons Bran deserves to be the Three-Eyed Raven is that he does make this horribly ethical, wrong decision in what he does to Hodor and we don't see him repeat it again.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: All right, well, do you have any final thoughts?
1: Only that I thought he was a boy who hated stories. How did he end up being the one with the best story? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this has been a lot of fun. I, I really enjoy digging into uh, new and exciting Uh, forms of mythology that we haven't discussed on the podcast before so if there's any more that you want to hear with regard to Welsh mythology I think there's a lot of corollaries to other characters in the north like Jon Snow and Catelyn for example who I'd be interested in digging into in the future so again if there are characters that you want to hear us dig into now that Game of Thrones is over hit us up on Twitter at The Midnight Myth and tell us who your favorite is and what you want to hear.
0: Yeah I think as we reflect on Brand, the King of the Six Kingdoms, we do need to fundamentally ask ourselves some questions about who has power and why and who should we trust? Who should be the wisest? Who should be the person with the most authority? And is that authority justified? And are the people with authority using it correctly? I think these are big questions of Game of Thrones and that having a character like Bran ultimately be be the king, someone with a moral center, someone with intense wisdom, and someone who has tremendous empathy for others. These are the characteristics that we should be looking for when it comes to the people that we want to lead us. And I think this is as true from a from the president of the United States to the school board in your local community. Seek out those that have Tyrions in their corner And seek out those that have intense knowledge of the past and those that have a vested interest in making sure that everyone is healthy and happy. And I think that's ultimately how you have a good ruler.
1: I love it. What a great final thought.
0: And until next time, guys. My sweet
1: summer children. Be kind. Be kind.